So I grew up uh, in the middle of the state in, in Michigan. I uh, have known nothing better than our wonderful winters and wonderful life. And uh, when I was growing up, uh, we didn't have formal uh, teams. They didn't have programs for hockey at that time, but we had neighbors that flooded their backyard sometimes. And so I remember particularly John Grettenberger. I love John. just love his name, Grettenberger. It just sounds like a good name, doesn't it? John's parents flooded his backyard, and we would go over there and play hockey fairly often. And on one particular occasion, I was playing. And do you ever have that where you remember it very, very profoundly, but you're thinking, if I could watch this, it probably looked like I was just fumbling around on the ice. But in this particular moment, I actually somehow got near to the goal with the puck, which, by the way, was an achievement for me because my skating prowess was definitely not good. Anyway, I, I smacked it in. It went in, and I took to the ground as I fell and got up, didn't notice anything, was pretty pumped doing the trying to do the big strut, like I'm making it happen, though with my skating skills, it was more like the sad, pathetic kind of strut. And then someone said, hey, you okay? And they pointed, and there was red on the ice, and there was, I reached down, and there was red in my chin. It was bleeding. And in, in the most gritty, strong way possible, I began to shrill and scream and make my way off the ice, running with my skates on the, you know, on the, on the snow back home, <sighs> the whole way, just crying. Not gonna lie to you. Proud moment. <clears throat> so I get home. Uh, my dad, uh, at that, my dad was a doctor, and of course he looked it over and said, oh, you're gonna need stitches. And being a kind and compassionate doctor, he actually called a plastic surgeon to meet us there because this is a moneymaker. I don't know why. It's funny, too, because it's my chin anyway. If you just thought, you know, you might, that chin might grow down and you might see it, so we should take care of it. I don't know what it was, but anyway. So I get to the hospital, the ER with him, and, you know, the, it's the first time I actually experienced pain from it. It didn't hurt, and the doctor sticks me with a needle, and, ah! then, and my incredible gritty scream comes out again. Uh, and he sews it all up, and at that time, they didn't make dissolvable stitches, or at least they weren't accustomed to me. So my father, in his very compassionate way, said, ah, no problem, I'll take him out. Well, I love that he's a cardiologist, but I don't think kindly taking out my stitches, stitches was his strength. So needless to say, that was actually the most painful time of all of it. And it's, I think he enjoyed it. Like, no, I'm not sure it's out yet. And I screamed some more. <laughs> and what I recall about it is, pain was not really in my portfolio, nor was I thinking it was supposed to be in my portfolio. Life was supposed to be good, and I'm supposed to be fairly pain-free, and this is away from what life should be, amen? And, and let's be honest, most of us live that way today, don't we? Maybe you don't scream like I do, but we find other ways. And, and I tell you that because we're looking at the seven words of Jesus, which is really the culmination of his suffering, and we tend to want to think about it as if Jesus had to endure these things so life would be better rather than realizing, do you know a lot of the Gospels, this is the part they talk about? The Gospels are the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So when we look at John's account, which is what we're going to look at today, in this one particular moment as Jesus is on the cross, we are literally looking into what John gives half of his whole account of Jesus to, which means he spends half of the account talking about this final week, which is a week of deep pain, passion, and suffering. And, and all that is to say... What if God wants us to engage and not hide from and see what we learn in the midst of suffering rather than just try to get through it? 
Now, if you weren't with us in the first two weeks, we looked at the first two phrases that are spoken of. The first one, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He literally is looking at the people that are about to really come after him even more harshly, though he's on the cross, and somehow offers forgiveness. Doesn't make sense. Last week, Kim Gladden beautifully helped us look at this moment when Jesus is on the cross and he has a criminal on either side, both deserving of pain and suffering and death. And he says to one of them, today you'll be with me in paradise. You should go back and watch that because she had just great insights for us. And so today we're gonna continue to look at what happens in this moment. But as we do, we're actually going to look at the people around the cross because indeed, John stops and has us experience this to see who's there with Jesus. And so we're in John chapter 19. Today, this is John's account, one of four. And this is what it says as John introduces this moment in verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, I want to get into what all of this means, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background for those of you that may be interested. There's been a lot of conjecture over church history of who, how many people are here. Because, like, for example, is Mary and her sister the last two? Like, are they the same? Now, the difficulty would be they'd both be named Mary. You see that, right? Can you imagine? Let's name all the kids Mary, and then we call them for dinner. They'll all come. Mary, here they come. So it just might know that it has weak tenant to it. Uh, some combined one in the middle, and it's not central to our picture, but you need to know this is, I would say, most likely four people, four women. And, and, the, and what is significant about it, as we look at it to begin with, is the fact that the women are around the cross very simply means they're not a threat. So imagine if Jesus had followers and they're crucifying him because he was a threat to Rome and a threat to Israel, that means anybody else associated with him could be taken out. So that's one of the reasons the disciples actually scatter. Though as we'll see in a few minutes, one of the disciples hangs around, but we know he's so young that they probably looked at him and thought, no threat. Might be why it was easier. So what we have are these four women around the cross because they're not seen as a threat and they're not seen as significant. And yet, that's what John points out are these four women. I want to take the last one, Mary Magdalene, because she's actually the one we know even, she's even referred to more than Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the gospel. She's referred to 12 or 13 times, depending on how you perceive her. Now, if you haven't been around the church, you may not know anything of her. If you have been, oftentimes Mary gets associated with this kind of promiscuous history and a very shady thing because she gets connected to another character in the gospels. Yeah, it upsets me too. I don't like it when that happens. I love it. That's kind of what I sounded like, by the way, in case you wondered what it sounded like when I hurt my chin. That was spot on. That's a teenage boy scream right there, huh? I think it's how I sound now, actually. We should ask Jane later, but... Sad when your mind goes to other places, isn't it? Come with me. Uh, (laughs) Where was I again? Just give me a second. Thank you. Mary, that's right. So a lot of people have have seen her as this kind of uh, woman to be shamed. And the interesting thing is it didn't happen until the 5th century. It was was Pope Gregory that aligned this. and, And I'm not... We don't really have a good biblical case for it. It it doesn't central to the story, but what we know about Mary Magdalene is that she had seven demons that were cast out of her. So we know she was oppressed deeply and demonized and freed from it. We know that after this, she followed Jesus, and we know she was actually part of the funding stream, which is what you'll see is it's often women around the disciples that are part of 
they seem to be some of the wealthier ones that help fund and are part of supporting the ministry that's going on. So she's walking through all of this with them. Now, what goes on even from here is that Mary Magdalene will be the first one that Jesus reveals himself to after the resurrection. They call her the apostle to the apostles, which is crazy fun because, again, when people say, why would you ever believe the Bible? You go, well, you got to know it was written in a way that was honest because who would ever make that the character that is the one that we get? So there's this incredible vulnerability to it. But what I want you to consider as you just think about Mary Magdalene is she's gone from darkness and oppression to light. She's found new hope and is now following this new savior. And suddenly it leads her to a cross where he's about to die and all her hope is gone. I mean, can you imagine that she had a great future intact, that everything had turned, and instead she hits a wall of disillusionment and despair where it's all gonna be gone. And she's looking at him in the face. She's looking into the eyes that saved her, and those eyes are in pain and suffering and struggle. And she is disillusioned. Now, can you imagine that that might be something we go through too, is disillusionment in the midst of faith? Could it be that you began your career and you thought it would move off in a great direction and it seemed to, and even seemed to move ahead, but one bad decision, one mess up, or even one thing you couldn't predict, one violation, and it all tanked. And now you're like, what just happened? Or you entered married life with the thought that my marriage will be wonderful and it seemed to be okay, only to find out years into it, it's fallen apart and it's not kids didn't grow up the way they thought they would. Or think of our students that go through middle school and high school and we tell them that Jesus loves them and he's with them and for them and yet, man, they go to the school and it's lonely and difficult and it doesn't seem like anybody sees them. Mary is looking, Mary Magdalene at Jesus with disillusionment and despair and brokenhearted. And if you think she's in despair, let's take it back to Jesus' mother. The, the woman who has a supernatural revelation, a supernatural revelation that Jesus is gonna be her son and he's gonna come supernaturally. You, you realize that's quite amazing, right? Like we, we run past it, but can you imagine living your life knowing that? And then the gospel tell us she ponders this stuff. So every time she sees something, she ponders it, she ponders it. Like she's been taking it in all through Jesus' life. Even when he stays in Jerusalem as a, basically a young adolescent, and she's mad because he didn't go with her. And then she finds out he's growing in wisdom and stature, so she pondered it again. Like, she just has been taking in, kind of drinking in every moment of his call to be the savior of the world, of the Lord himself being her son. In fact, when he gets to adult life, it's actually in John's account, they have seven signs. It's the first sign of Jesus being the Lord. They're at a wedding, on a Tuesday, by the way, which, in case you don't know, is the day of Jewish weddings in the, in the Bible because uh, when you have the creation story, God says it's good twice. So they go, hey, we should get married on a day that's doubly blessed. Boom. Bada boom, bada bing, bada blessing. That's what it goes. <laughs> I knew that would help you today. Weddings, suddenly weddings are on Tuesdays. Why? Anyway, so they're at this wedding, and they run out of wine. And she goes to him and goes, hey, Jesus, there's no wine. That's what she says. It's literally the translation. Not quite. And he's like, woman, dear woman, why are you doing this? It's not my time. Which, by the way, him just saying dear woman is not something you would typically say to your mom. So it's, what does he mean by this? We still have lots of conjecture about it, but he refers to her a little differently. She's dear, but he says, why are you including me in this? And then all she says is, 
After he says his time hasn't come, hey, she tells the people around, do whatever he says. So he gives some direction. This water's turned into wine. It's a crazy, amazing miracle. Jesus taking what is broken and nothing and turning it into something amazing. By the way, that's the image of the sign of it. And so she's thinking, I'm beginning to get to see this, but he said my time hasn't come. Now her life is going to continue on, and now she is at the cross, and this was no way what she thought would happen. Now we might say she should know, we might even think the prophecies tell us, but we know she is looking brokenhearted, confused, and disillusioned. It's just for me, I, I think in the church we often want to get to resurrection, and we think of suffering as only a quick means to get through it for him, and then we shouldn't have to do it. But suffering is a part of humanity and life and how we live. And what if living in it is different than getting through it? And so we're sitting at the cross with these women, disheartened, broken, and despairing. And I wonder how many of us are disheartened, broken, and despairing. Maybe you grew up in the church and you thought Jesus was great until you've seen the way Christians have acted the last few years. You're like, I'm not even sure what I think anymore. Maybe it is a circumstance in your own life. It seemed to work, but now someone I love got a death sentence or even died or went through misery. How could God allow suffering like this? And you're left with questions you don't know how to answer. That's the moment of Mary and Mary and these other two women. They are looking into the eyes of who they thought should be their savior and they don't see it coming. And in case you don't believe that, Understand that after Jesus dies, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, not because she thinks he's going to rise. She just wants to care for the body because she's so brokenhearted. And then she gets shocked to find out he's alive and gets to be the one to tell everybody else, come on, that's just awesome. But I want you to be with me in sitting that suffering and disillusionment and pain is part of what can happen and does happen to us as Christians. And if I were to summarize it, kind of think of these four people, I go, you know what they are? They're alone and they're on their own. In other words, they might even be standing together, but Mary, who we know her husband's already died, Jesus has been helping care for her, others have. She's a widow. She has no way to live life. She's alone, and with Jesus passing, she's on her own. And really, to a major degree, that's true of anyone. And can we agree that's true when we get to a place where we're in deep pain and we're disillusioned? Have you ever said this? No one else could understand what I'm going through right now. We all say it, don't we? Most of us go, no one really understands what I'm going through when I'm at disillusionment. And on top of it, we become really alone. And we feel isolated and we feel on our own. I don't even know how I'm going to get out of this. I want you to sit there with me and then I want you to see how Jesus responds. Because I get so concerned that we treat our faith as if it's a easy life, comfortable way forward, get out of jail free card, that it should just keep getting better and simpler. And it makes disillusioning the moments that are suffering and struggling and painful. And I wish I could tell you it differently because maybe a few of you will live a fairly free life from suffering, but most of us will not. And the beauty of it is those are the things that shape us and God meets us in. Let me take you to Jesus' response. And remember, he's sitting there in miserable pain. He sees his mother there. By the way, he sees his mother. In other words, he sees her. She's not unseen. She is seen. 
I mean, one thing I want you to know is if you feel alone and unseen, Jesus sees you. He actually sees you. And he sees you in the midst of his suffering. And, and I don't know if it mazes you, because I know even with little suffering and little pain, I'm pretty well able to focus on just me. I'm not usually thinking, oh, this is horrible pain. Who can I help? I'm thinking, this is horrible pain. How can I relieve it? Jesus is in deep pain and suffering, and he sees her. Some of you just need to know, you may not think any of us see, but the Lord does. The Lord sees you in your pain, and he cares. And that's where it takes us in this. He sees his mother there. He sees the disciple whom he loved, this young disciple we assume is John. And he says to her, woman, here's your son. And the disciple, here is your mother. Now, now we know that he is making a testamentary statement here. One of the things that would happen when someone was dying a death like this is what they said in the midst of their dying was considered almost like a will or an authoritative statement. So he's taking his mother who has no one to care for her, no one to see, and he's taking the disciple who he knows and he says, you know what? Let's bring you together and I want you to be in this together. By the way, you're not alone, either of you, and you're not on your own, you're actually together. And in case you don't know this, this isn't just a statement of Jesus to his mother, though it is providing for her. It's a statement and a picture of the very church he's about to build through us. Because guess what the church does? We see people alone and on their own, and we come together to live in community with that. Did you know that's what God called us to be? We're a community like no other. And I love what it says, just to clarify this, at the end of the passage, it says, oh, from that day on, this disciple took her into his home. John literally took her in and not only said, you're not alone, he said, you're not on your own. He actually said, I'm here and I'm with you and I'm gonna stay with you. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, I say this, you go, oh, this is great, that's what the church should do. But can we be honest about how we live? Well, at least I'll start. You can decide. Don't we have pretty busy lives with a lot of things going on and a lot that we want and we don't, we'll do it to a point as long as it doesn't push our comfort too far, as long as we're not asked too much of, as long as things get better quickly, I'm there. I am there for lunches on Tuesdays and a periodic check-in. John took her into his life. John lived in relationship with her. And in case you don't know, most people when they're in despair, it doesn't get better simply and easily. Did you know that? I know you all have great advice. Have you ever been given advice and not followed it well? I've got trails of it that's been told to me. Because guess what? Life is harder than that. And what John shows us is a life of surrender and sacrifice. What Jesus invites in a moment like this is a life of surrender and sacrifice. You don't get here with comfort and self-protection. That's the beauty of what he said, and it's amazing to see other people do it. But for us to take up our cross, it's a harder sell sometimes. We're all reasonable people with better boundaries, and this idea of what he's inviting is something that doesn't make sense. And yet, very beautifully and very simply, he's saying you are not alone and you're not on your own. And that's what he says to us, both to receive and to give. It's crazy to me to think about how we need to hear this personally in our lives. I mean, I wanna say it as you receive it before I ask you to give it. 
And, and I'll say it this way. So Tim Keller tells a story of a professor in Australia, Dixon is his last name, and he's teaching a class on the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus. And as he's telling them about all the things that we both talked about, many we haven't even gotten into, one of his students who's a Muslim raises his hand and says, this is ridiculous. Why would God who causes everything into being subject himself to eating and drinking and sleeping and suffering and using the bathroom and especially to torment and misery? I don't get it. This is ridiculous and blasphemous. And Dixon pauses for a minute and kind of just contemplates it intellectually and goes, you know, he's actually right. It doesn't make sense. I can't really explain this away. And then I would say in a revelatory moment, he says, this is what I know. What you see as blasphemous, we see as sacred and beautiful because God has wounds. You see, Jesus enters the world so that he can be with us because God has wounds. He enters suffering because the only answer to suffering is to be with it together, not to say, I'll just make it go away. And he's God having wounds. You want to know how he sees Mary and sees John? Because Jesus understands the pain of their lives because of the pain of his own. It's one of the things for me that I often ache for is for us, I don't, I don't pray for you to experience pain, but I pray for us to be compassionate in our pain because it's in pain that you actually see the pain of others. I, I always can see it. People who've been through things can kind of detect it in other people when they go through it. It's almost like we have a different sense of smell. We can just smell it in each other. I smell the pain. I see the ache in their eyes. I watch the way they walk. And Jesus comes in woundedness to let us as well live in woundedness, to bring to each other the presence of who we are and bring the hope and help that we're not alone. I just wonder today who needs that. I wonder who today needs to know you're not alone. You, you've been trying so hard and you're probably getting on that treadmill going, I'm gonna try again, I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna make up for all the disillusion I have. It's up to me and the Lord goes, no, no, let me just be with you in it. Your job is not to fix it and make it better, it's to be met in it and know you're not alone and you're not on your own. And I think for some here today, we want you to discover that. We always invite you to respond to who Jesus is. People various weeks do it different times, but we want you to know you can trust God, not because he's gonna fix life for you, but because he's gonna meet you in the life you have and give purpose and meaning to it. You know, I didn't tell you with Mary Magdalene and Mary and the other two as well, they're not considered a threat because women weren't because they couldn't do anything. I want to fast forward to the book of Acts. This is after Jesus rises and the church starts to gain some power. And we don't hear from Mary or Mary Magdalene again in the New Testament. We don't know anything about what happened. So it's not their personal victory. But I want you to know the ground they laid. So what happens is I told the story some weeks ago of Stephen uh, being stoned, and he dies. And this miracle of him asking for God to forgive the people that kill him. But right after this, Saul, who's really trying to get rid of the Jews, uh, of these particular Jews that follow Jesus, it says he began to bring persecution, and the church scatters everywhere. And as it's talking about the scattering, it says, Saul imprisoned men and women because he wanted them out, because guess what? They were a threat. 
Women who'd never been a threat became a threat. You know why? Because women sat in the presence of Jesus and became a force they'd never been before. I wonder how many of you feel powerless like you're not gonna make a change in life. Men, women, young ones, older ones. Jesus, through his crucifixion and through his suffering, brings a way that we change life by following him. Whether life gets better for us or not personally, he moves. And, that, and that's part of the struggle for me is we, we always want it to finish well and have a great ending. And we'd ache over the fact that, guess what? It doesn't always move to the best ending, but it moves to the best God who has wounds meeting us and being with us and helping us through things. And some of us need that today. And then I'll tell you, for all of us who follow Jesus, we need to be asking, who can I move towards and how can I help them? Because quite honestly, this is not something we look at and we just say, well, Jesus did it. That's great. I'm going to pray Jesus does it again. Where did Jesus put his presence after he rose? We ask you every time, where did he put it? Inside us. I was really confident and strong. Where did he put his presence? Who do you think... When people say they don't see Jesus, where do you think he put himself for them to see him? In us. Maybe in the midst of our struggling and pain, we look out and we begin to have eyes to see people in their pain. And we say, you're not alone and you're not on your own. Who can I help and how can I help? What might be different if you and I move towards this? What might be different if we begin to see the students around us. I think of our students in here who, man, that just walk into middle school alone and lonely and broken, feeling like nobody cares. Think of how many need others to walk into their lives and just go, we see you, we love you, you're not alone. Think of those who've been through devastation and just think there's no way to make this better. I can't tell you how many people I meet that think somehow they've got to make it up to God to get back to a place where he'll be happy with them. And we see them and go, no, no, God loves you right here. That things don't turn out the way we thought as parents and our kids are not in the place we thought they would be and we suddenly feel like we're complete failures. And God goes, no, no, you're right where I want you to be. I love you, I'm right here with you. Or we get a death sentence on an illness and think there's no way unless God heals us, it's better. And God goes, no, I'm right here with you. Whether you get better or not, I am here with you. And God calls us to be with them as well. Can you see the power and the profoundness of God having wounds and saying, I want you to meet each other in the wound, not just hope I'll take it away. We're not alone. We're not on our own. And we're called to love others the very same way. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do not know what people need here, but you do. So I thank you for that. And I pray for those who feel unseen and then notice that they would hear your very whisper say, I see you and I love you. That they're not alone and they're not on their own. Lord, I pray you'd minister to that. I pray for those who have just not wanted to take the risk of trusting you. That they'd take a step and go, God who has wounds, God who'd love me this much, God who meets me in that. And they would want your forgiveness. And Lord, help them to begin to follow, to run after you and put people around them that will walk with them. And then, Lord, I pray for those of us who've kind of drawn limits. Hey, it's my comfort, it's my busyness, it's what I have in my life. Don't ask me for more. And they would hear your gentle whisper to take up their cross and follow you, to surrender, to live for you, 
to embrace life that comes instead of making it be a prescription for what they want. Lord, I pray you'll give us eyes to see others when they're lonely and struggling that we'd move towards them. Whether it's simply sitting in the room and we see somebody sitting alone or sitting at work and we say, how can we help? Or somebody sitting in a lunchroom or somebody sitting in a coffee shop or somebody sitting in an event we're at or in our neighborhoods. God, open our eyes to see those who are alone and help us not just to move towards but to help. Help us to know how and when to sacrifice and to live out the very answer to what Jesus said, here's your mother, here's your son, and to take care of those in need and take care of those forgotten. God, lead us to that end in your name. Amen.